Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to catch us up on where we got to last week because, um, as I explained last week, this series is kind of cumulative. And the purpose of it is to help us rediscover that first radical love that we have for Christ. Because a lot of us w have walked a long time with Christ and it, it, it can sometimes feel like we, we've got dulled down. And we, we get dulled down because the world invades our life and we get busy and there's all sorts of things that we uh, build into our life, that we've got life goals, life objectives, things we want to achieve. And, and over time, that first love for Christ gets, gets kind of crowded. And it's not that we don't want to, it's just that there's a lot going on. And so what we... The, the way that we can look at that is to go back and say, okay, what was it? What is really radical about what we believe? What's radical about our faith? Is, is, it, is the way that I'm uh, living out my Christianity, the way that I'm living out my faith, is that, is that how it's meant to be? Is, is this it? Is this what it looks like? It, does it look like me uh, coming to church on a Sunday morning and... Uh, spending the rest of the week busy and coming back to Sunday church on, on a Sunday morning for a rest just to get away from it all? Is that, is that what my Christianity looks like? Or should it look or can it look something a bit more radical than that, a bit different to that? And um, we, we started to look at what it means to be radical. Remember, I put up this definition last week of, of radical, and, and it's not my definition, it's a it's a dictionary definition, and these, this is what it means. If you're radical, it affects the fundamental nature of something. It's far-reaching, it's thorough, it goes to the root or to the core. And it's comprehensive. It's not just a little bit, you know, like a little tweak. It's a comprehensive difference, a comprehensive change. And uh, there's this other meaning of radical, which means to advocate or based on complete social change. And in that sense, it's revolutionary and it's extreme. And if you haven't uh, encountered the Jesus of the Gospels, what you find in the Gospels is Jesus was revolutionary and extreme. And when you encounter Peter, you find out he turns out revolutionary and extreme. And when you encounter Paul, you get revolutionary and extreme. And these guys, you know, a few years on from the, the death and resurrection for Jesus, they're accused of turning the world upside down. Some ordinary guys turning the world upside down. And that's because they got hold of radical. They got hold of an understanding that this is my life. This is what it's like. And so we started with um, that first radical truth last week. And this is radical truth number one. So don't put the next slide up. So radical truth number one from last week is there's nothing you have done or can do to earn God's love for you. And that is really good news. That means that God's love for you isn't based on you. And that's good, isn't it? Yeah. It should be good because if it was based on you, when you don't feel good about yourself, when you mess up, when you do some ugly stuff, or even when you just like can't be bothered, God still loves you. It's just kind of you're not feeling it. But he's still loving you because his love is not based on you. And uh, we, we got to this point last week of saying, the basis of God's love for you is him. 
It's what Christ did for you. Is an enactment of that love. And in a world of religion, that is absolutely radical. You might not think it's radical, but it's something you should get really excited about. Because in a world of religion, that is the most radical message on planet Earth. That the God who created the universe loves you. Despite you. Because he chooses to love. And um, in the midst of all these religions that say, you know, it's, what, it's based on what you can do, what you must do, what you must observe, what you must uh, work out, what you must uh, slave away at, what you must serve in, and all these sort of traditions and all this sort of stuff. In the midst of all that, the true God of the universe says, whatever you can do will never be enough. You can never make things right with me. You can never earn God's forgiveness. And some of us take it on like we can. We take it on like we can make things right with God. And we can't. And here's the good news. Because the gospel's good news. By the way, there's no bad news in good news. Anybody try to sell you any bad news? It's not the gospel. Just, just a little aside there. But... Here's the good news. You don't have to do any of that stuff to get to God. You don't have to do any of that stuff for God to love you. See, here's what's so radical about Christianity. God does not say there are things you need to do to get back to him. He's not got these like steps on a ladder that get you to heaven. And you've got to work out those steps and get through them. He's not got a, like a list of do this, fix that. He doesn't work like that. What he says is, I will make you clean. I will come down. I will save you. I'm going to bring you back to me. And I'm going to bring you back to me through faith in what my son is going to do for you. And that is the radical core of Christianity. It's the radical root, the far-reaching, the comprehensive, thorough center that makes true Christianity radical. He loves you not because you are good enough. He loves you because he is gracious enough and he is good enough. And that's kind of where we got to last week. That's where we, we finished last week. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on from there. Because whenever you, you preach these truths, you encounter the same problem that the Apostle Paul encountered that you get a bunch of religious Christians who will come along and say, that can't be right. Because are you saying, I can do anything I like and it doesn't matter because God's still going to love me? Are you saying, I can do anything I want to do and it's okay? If you're not preaching grace, you're not getting that question asked. So if you're not hearing that question, you're not in grace. You're not, you're not talking grace. Because the natural corollary of grace is you get that question. Is it okay for me to do anything I want to do because God loves me anyway? And Jesus died for my sins. So is that okay? Can I do anything I want to do? 
Let me answer that. Yes. Now you're shocked, aren't you? But here's the thing. True Christianity changes your wants. You won't want to do because the Holy Spirit has come to live in you. And you have a whole new set of wants. So what you'll want to do is live for Christ. What, you, what, what your flesh will want to do is something totally different. But what you want to do inside, if you're, if you're truly Christian, is you want to walk with Christ. So yes, you can do anything you want to do because God's in the process of changing your wants. You see that? It's kind of a stupid question. Do I, can I just go on doing wrong stuff? Why would you want to? It screwed your life up. That's why you found a saviour in the first place. Why do you want to do that when you don't have to? Just stupid question. Stupid, stupid question. And you get like, you get like a bunch of people and they go, oh, well, you know, grace covers everything. Grace doesn't save you. Grace through faith saves you. There's two parts to it. You can't have grace without a response. It's you either take hold of grace and use it, or you leave it out there and it's grace in vain. It doesn't work. You see, it's grace through faith. And people go, they, they get all confused because they just talk about grace. Well, there's more than grace out there. So let's go, let's go on from that. Here's the point. And this should have been explained to us when we became believers. It was definitely explained to me. I'm not so sure we explain it that well anymore. Here's the point. When you become a believer, your life is not about you anymore. You give your life to Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. Because it was a rubbish life. It was, it was a mess. It was a sinful life. It was, it was doing all sorts of stuff that was getting worse, and you gave it to Christ. And in return, you get his life. So now your life is about his life in you. That's, that's the truth of Christianity. That's the radical core of Christianity, that your life is now about Christ's life in you. Are, are, you, are you getting this? I've decided to set off like full on this morning. Okay, here's the truth. Here's radical truth number two. Your life is not about just you anymore. It's about living in, him living in you and through you. That's Christianity. Christianity isn't about a ticket to heaven, although it does provide that. But that's a little tiny bit of what Christianity is. You see, when we had our, when we got, when we was originally met with Christ and fell in love with him, that's what we were signing up to, him living through us. We said, take my old life, it's dead, give me a new life. And that's what he's doing. I was, um, I don't normally engage in debates on Facebook. I normally just stick stuff up there and let it happen. But there's uh, somebody 
this is a couple of months ago, two, three months ago, and he was, he was quite concerned, not about something I'd said, but about something that was, was going on in his hometown, where uh, they were claiming that there was this uh, revival and move of God, and yet nobody seemed to actually make, get into church. And when people were questioned afterwards, felt that they'd been kind of coerced into signing things, <laughs> which is just wrong. Just let me tell you, it's wrong. Um, and so he, he was upset about this. And as a result of this, he was uh, kind of in this debate about what it means to be a Christian. And a lot of people were saying, well, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, Jesus died first. You just sign, you just sign the card. You sign up. You say the prayer. You're all right. And, and so... I felt at that moment, which is unusual to me, I, I would enter the debate. And so, and, and the question was around whether um, just basically filling in a card or sticking your hand up or saying you're interested in Jesus, is that it? And this is what I wrote, so I'll read it to you. You might, not, you might like it, you might not like it, but I liked it. Okay. Listen carefully, because I'm going to read it, because I want to make sure I get it right. The gospel, by its very nature, is radical. That's the moment I got the title for this service, this series. Portraying a saviour who carried the judgment of all as the cup of wrath was poured out on him. He did this by choice and from love, because we couldn't rescue ourselves. This radical gospel portrays the desperate condition of those without a saviour and his sacrifice is a gift to all who believe. It's a gift to everybody who believes. This gospel is so radical it cannot be reduced simply to just inviting Jesus in or accepting him. We don't do that. Left to ourselves, an unbeliever does not go and just accept Jesus. We don't go seeking him. He comes seeking us. Do you understand that? You know, when we talk about seeker sensitive, we need to be sensitive to the one who does the seeking, and that's God. Man in his normal state isn't interested in God. It's God that is out there with his Holy Spirit working in people's hearts to bring them to him. It's all him. He is the one coming after us, pursuing us to save us from our desperate, God-neglecting, self-focused, self-exalting lives. Jesus is not one just to be invited in or accepted, and that's the end of it. He's a glorious saviour who's worthy of our immediate and ongoing total devotion. You cannot earn this salvation. It's by grace through faith alone and nothing to do with us. But true grace received by true faith crucially and vitally includes the gift of a new heart and you become a new creation. New desires, new longings. We want God, we want Jesus, we need Jesus, we seek after him and we go after him until we find him. We discover that he is the great reward, the centre of the universe, the one who alone is worthy of our life and gives it purpose. We are saved not just for forgiveness, but to know God and live for him. So we long for him and abandon all that would get in the way of that knowing. 
This is the radical response engendered by the radical gospel of an all-sufficient king over all saviour. This radical gospel bears fruit because the heart is different. This radical gospel puts Christ at the centre of all, and this radical gospel does the works of the kingdom. Amen. So I'm now going to unpack that a little bit for you, having, having read it. You see, the problem when people say, well, can you just do anything you want? They say, you know, you're giving people a license to sin. Now, that's the wrong question. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but that's actually, the, you're on the wrong ground talking like that anyway. Because the issue isn't sin actions. I don't know if you, you, you've ever understood this, but the issue isn't the sin action. You see, in the Old Testament, before Jesus, they had a load of rules. They had 613 rules. And they couldn't keep them. And so they failed. They kept failing. Jesus paying for our sins doesn't solve that problem. People left to their own devices carry on sinning. The problem was never the sin action. The sin action was a way of keeping score and measuring how bad things have got, but they were, it wasn't the problem. The problem was you. You inside. The desires that gave rise to that problem. I know this is kind of radical, but sometimes you need to unsort a load of stuff out of your head because some of the stuff that we've been taught is just wrong. You see, the problem's not what you do. The problem is that you want to do it. So you do it. James put it like this. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away. How? By his own desires and enticed. The devil gets in. The world gets in. Your own flesh gets in. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Where's the problem? The problem's the desire. The problem's not the sin action. The sin action's the result of the desire. That's what's so radical about Christianity. It doesn't give you a set of rules to try and keep them. What it does is it changes you from the inside out so your desires change. And that solves the sin action problem. Because the desires aren't there anymore. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the problems are desires. And so the, the, the radical root of the problem is desire. It's your want-tos. And Jesus has done something about those desires. See, under the old covenant, there was forgiveness for sin. It was messy. It was bulls, goats, blood, fire all over the place, running down little channels. Hundreds of thousands of bulls and goats sacrificed on a, on a weekly basis. Huge. And there's forgiveness of sin. But they carried on sinning because nothing had changed inside them. So Jesus came and he paid for sin. And then 
He gave you the Holy Spirit by new birth to live in you so your desires could change. You're not like an Old Testament uh, Israelite. You're not like an Old Testament Jew. You are born again. There's a new life in you. That's the radical thing about Christianity. It gives new life. It changes your desires if you let it. Here's a bigger problem about letting it. Most people don't understand it, so they can't even cooperate with it. And, and we need to get away in church from managing sin actions to actually imparting the good news that you changed and you're going to keep on changing. Because when you get a grasp of this, it just changes you. Life, life is different. You're not trying to manage you anymore. You're trying to draw on the power of Christ in you to let you live differently. So, you know, all these questions like, can I just carry on doing what I want? Your wants are changing. Your wants come from Christ. Ultimately, the goal is you want what he wants. So how's this work? How does this produce a radical new life? Well, the first thing it does is this. It shifts your perspective. You see, for a believer, and I know this might be a little bit disappointing, but your life's not about you anymore. And I know some of us have heard that in a different context. It's not all about you. Well, Truthfully, it's not about you, but it is about Christ. It's not about anything else. It's not about a church agenda or reaching so-and-so or doing this or laying down your life for a bigger organization or any of those things. But it's not about you anymore. It's about Christ. You gave him your life. And, and in return for that, he's, gonna, he's saying, I'm going to shift your perspective. So, here's how this works. Because I think it's really important you understand how some things fit together. So, here's the first thing about this, uh, this shift in perspective. Why, why does God carry on loving us when we screw up, when we're apathetic, when we don't care, when we can't be bothered, when we're self-centered. Because that's what it comes down to, self-centered. So what, what, what does he do? Here's the first thing that God does. He doesn't address those things. Here's what he does. He says, here's how this, this perspective shifts. God's love for you puts you at the center of his heart. <coughs> so here, here's how the, the, way, the way God responds to you with all your messes, quirks. You know, when, when God planned your destiny, you know, he factored in our stupidity. He, he knows who we are. He's not, he, not like he knows who we are and he still loves us and he puts us in a place that is secure 
which is the center of his own heart. And here's some of the things he says, he says about that. Uh, Psalm 139. Uh, verses 17 to 18. How precious are your thoughts towards me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God's got a grip on you and he's not letting go. And he is constantly thinking precious thoughts towards you. And then we get to the most famous verse of all in the Bible. I, well, I think it is. You see it everywhere. John 3.16. Anybody want to recite it as I do? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Why did God give Jesus? Because he loved us. His love is the driving factor throughout the whole of creation, throughout the whole of eternity. The driving factor, the reason things happen is God's love. We, 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 this whole world is on an agenda of ultimately seeing God's love. And God loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. God's love isn't, isn't generated by us and therefore it's not dependent on us. He loves us because of who he is. Let me uh, just read you a couple of verses on that. 1 John 4, 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So he's what that's basically saying is getting getting the picture, guys. This is the place you want to be living. You want to be living in God's love. And here's here's what I can tell you about God. God is love. Now what that means is it doesn't say God has love. It doesn't say God can love. It doesn't say God will love you depending on. X, X, and X. It says God is love. It's his very nature. It's who he is, and therefore he can't behave in a different way. God is love. And what's that love look like? Well, we find out in 1 John uh, 4, 10 that, that, that we get this love defined for us. And this love carries a, a, a special name. It's called agape love. And agape love is defined like this. In this is love. Not that we loved God, because we didn't, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know you're really intelligent because you come from the, the, you know, this glorious region of intellectualism, that propitiation means basically a substitutionary sacrifice. It means he made the payment for, instead of you. So God loved you so much, he went through what you should have gone through in order to rescue you into his love. And that's awesome, isn't it? You know, it's kind of like, on a Monday morning, that is the sort of thing that we should be excited about. 
Because you're not going to be excited about work. So why are you thinking about work on a Monday morning? You should be excited about that. You know, and, and on Friday night, when you get home and you're excited, now you've finished work, you should be reminding yourself of that and saying it's going to be a great weekend. Because that's how God thinks of me. He died for me when I couldn't care less about him. So, here's the thing. God's placed us, you, at the center of his attention. At the center of his passion, at the center of his energy. And that's this amazing message that we've discovered over the last 20, 25 years about the Father heart of God. That God loves us as precious children. And just like Cheryl and I with our children, he knows all the warts, he knows all the rubbish stuff as well. And he loves us because he knows we're changing. He knows we're growing up into him. We're growing up and looking more and more like him. Now, here's where we have to be careful because, and this is a little bit prophetic, I guess, therefore might sound a bit sharp. Somehow, in the last 10, 15 years, we've also got in our head that that's where the gospel stops. And it's all about God doing this and loving me. And, you know, he's, he's just all about me being blessed and, and me being cared for and me getting the answers to everything. And, and it's all about how do I get God to answer my prayers? And we're all, we, everything should be sorted. Because if you stop the gospel at that point, that's where you get to. Now, here's the thing. That is absolutely true. It's absolutely true that, that God has placed us at the center of his attention, the center of his passion, the center of his energy. He loves us with the, the most burning passion that you could ever know, way beyond any passion you've ever felt. And he's a good father. It's all true. And he's placed you right at the center of his heart. I mean, how, how cool is that? Yeah, you should, yeah, everybody shout yeah like Rosie. Then we're all right, yeah. Here's the radical truth of Christianity. Because Christianity doesn't stop there. Christianity goes one step further. And it says, yes, God's placed you at the center of his attention, the center of his passion, and the center of his energy. God has put you at the center of his heart. But you are not the center of the universe. He is. God is the center of things, not you. The world does not revolve around you. Amazing as Cheryl is, the world does not revolve around Cheryl, except in our house. <laughs> when I do what I'm told. <laughs> But we are not the center of Christianity. And that's why we are so ineffective, because we've made us the center of Christianity. And the trouble is, if we preach this, you guys might not come back next week. But I can't not preach this any longer. 
We are not the center of the universe. Church is not about us. Christianity is not about us. Our life is not about us. It's about Christ because he's the center of the universe. And that's how the Holy Spirit is working in you to shift your perspective. That's how your wants are changing because you realize that the one who loves you so passionately is the one who is right at the center of everything. And he's the most important thing. Radical, true Christianity knows that Christ is the most important thing. Not you. I kind of like it to be me. You see, the thing is, for God, I'm it. You're it. You're, you're the object of his love. But you are not the object of Christianity. He is. Can you see? You can have both. And sometimes we preach one and not the other. Sometimes we preach Father Heart and not that God's the center of everything. Sometimes we talk about God being the center of everything and we, we can't get a hold of it because we can't work out he loves us. The two go together. Let me uh, just kind of move on a bit now. I'm covering my watch up, so I don't know what time it is. We're all right. Got 10 minutes left. See, when God takes us as we are, he, and we're born again, he does something from his perspective that affects our perspective, which is he adopts us into his family. And... That means that you're loved and you carry the family name, which is kind of cool. And here's the thing. When we, when we understand that, we can call God Father and we can look to him as Father and we can look to him as, as a good Father who cares deeply about us and thinks about us and thinks good thoughts towards us. Here's how efficient Ephesians uh, puts this. Ephesians 3, 14, 50 to in the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So the reason God does this, he takes us into his family so that through us, the principalities and powers, the enemy realm, comes to know the wisdom of God. There's a purpose in his being family, and that is to make the enemy know the wisdom of God. We, we are born into that purpose, and that's the purpose of the family. It's like, you know, every family has a purpose, doesn't it? Most of the time, it's just bringing your kids up, getting them out, and then having a life for yourselves. But, you know, every family has a purpose. And then it says, according to the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That means that he's done everything necessary through Christ, through his death and resurrection, to make that possible for us, the church. 
to display to the world and the enemy and the principalities and powers the wisdom of God, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So God's got this amazing idea called family. And we're his family. And our purpose as a family is to make known his wisdom to the enemy and to the world. And he did that by empowering us through the death and resurrection of Christ. Are you still with me? Because this is getting kind of really radical now. This might require you to do something with it. <coughs> now you've gone quiet. So going back to the passage that I started with last week, which is the passage I'm actually preaching on, Ezekiel 36, 19 to 22, says this. So I scattered them among the nations. This is, this is um, a prophecy given about Israel, um, but it's a pattern that we were looking at last week that, because the, 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 um, the way God works, is, it works on patterns. He repeats himself. Yeah? And it just works itself out in different ways. So it says, So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. This is Old Covenant. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. How did they do that? When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they've gone out of his land. So they're, they're, they're looking at, at, at these believers at the time. So now, you know, putting it in our language, they're looking at us and saying, you're a laughing stock, guys, because you say this all about your God, and yet you're not even living it. You're not living it. Getting uncomfortable now, aren't you? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. You are not the center of the universe. I do it for my holy name's sake. I'm the center of the universe, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And when we, when we don't live out our Christianity, that's what we're doing. We're saying one thing and giving a different impression to the rest of the world. So, here's, I want you to just pick a word out there, which is this, my name. I did this for the sake of my name. Now, hang on to your seats now. This is the important bit. I did this for the sake of my name. Roll forward this side of the cross. Christ takes us in to his family and adopts us and gives us his name. God does this for the protection and the establishment of his family. Ultimately, he is the center of the family, but we're in the family. You see, when we talk about father, our father is not a weak, soppy, sentimental, gibbering, fluffy, whatever you want him to be. 
you know, we, we've had people in the past years ago, they, they came to conferences. We, we used to do a lot more conferences. And they'd, they'd sit there with their thumb in their mouths going, Daddy God, Papa. And it was like crazy. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. But they did it. Why? Because they, they got a hold of that God is Father, but they'd forgotten God is King. God is Lord of the universe. Like, you know, when, when, when the queen walks in, her family bow down to her. They, they, ask, they, they acknowledge her as the one who is reigning. That's what the sort of father we have. He's not a weak, soppy father. He's the most powerful father in the universe. And that's great, isn't it? Because next time you're in the playground, the proverbial playground of life, you go, my dad's bigger than everybody. So don't pick on me when you're around. Because i got the biggest, most powerful dad in the world. He's king of the universe. Try that on somebody. See if it works. <laughs> so how does the world get to know God? How does he become the center of their universe? How does he, that, that truth that God is the center of the universe gets applied to people? He says, Ezekiel 20, 36, verse 23 from there. The nations shall know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. How does the world know that God is the one they should be looking to when we hallow him before their eyes? We are doing a really good job of hallowing the world in our churches. We are doing a really good job of backing off every time somebody says we can't say anything. That's why the world doesn't know Christ and doesn't know God because we are not hallowing him before their eyes. You still with me? Just need to uh, like land this. So let me just summarize where we're up to. The radical root of Christianity is that you are the center of God's heart and he saved you from your slavery to sin solely by his grace. And you are saved from your slavery to sin so that God is seen to be at the center of the universe as you hallow his name. Let me just ask you a question. If the core message of Christianity, so if I, if I asked you to sum up the core message of Christianity, if you were to summarize it as, because I did a little survey, asked, asked a number of people, um, not necessarily in this church, what do you think the core message of Christianity is? What do you think was the most overwhelming answer? God loves me. Now, that is true, but it is not the core message of Christianity. Because if that was the central message of Christianity, we have become the object of Christianity and not him. The central message of Christianity is that the God of the universe, who is at the center of all things, rescued me because he loves me. And as a result, I've given him my life. 
See, Christianity becomes about me. It becomes about my plans for my life. And church is about me. And the programs are about me. And the services are about me. And everything is about catering for me or I'll go somewhere else. And it's about what I like and what is convenient for me and what I can fit in in my busy life. Then we lose the aspect of radical Christianity. And when we're in that place, we lose our first love for Christ. Here's the point. He is God, we aren't. He's the God who's the object of Christianity. The one who is alone worthy of exaltation. And there is no one like him, nothing greater than him, nothing comparable to him. It's about his glory being shown in us. It's really hard to hallow God to the world when all we talk about is us. And God chose to glorify himself and exalt his name by sacrificing his son in our place for our sins and bring us into his family. You see, when God said, I did this for the protection of my name, he did it for the protection of his family. What's a family that's lost its name? What's a family that's lost its reputation? What's a family that that is regarded as having no integrity? What's a family that is regarded as, as a bunch of crooks and idolaters and all the rest of it? I don't, he, he didn't want us to, in a family like that. He loves us too much to put us in a family like that, so he protects the family name by reminding us that it's about him being at the center, the king. And when he walks in the room, he's still the king. Yes, he's father, but he's still the king. I don't, I don't know what it is to, to be part of royalty. But in a, in a week when we have got a royal giving up that, what are you giving up? Like, it must be really strange having that. This is my family, but this is also royalty. But that's kind of the situation we have to live in. This is my family. This is royalty. And he says, and I'll make you royalty too. Because you're family. You're kings, you're princes, you're princesses in this kingdom. So if you're God, and that's the situation, what is the greatest thing you can give to your children. Not, I don't mean Jesus 2,000 years ago. I mean now. What's the greatest thing that God can give his children? As the, as the greatest father in the universe, what's the greatest thing he can give them? If, if God is infinitely, gloriously loving, where all his love is summed up in him, if God is perfect love, then what is the greatest thing God can give us? Himself. 
And that is what he does. That is what he calls us to. He calls us not to a religion called Christianity. He calls us to a relationship as part of his Christian family. And the true follower of Jesus, the radical follower, remembers that that's how God loves him. And God's desire is to give him all of himself. And that life, that love, that joy and happiness is not found in living for me. It's found in knowing him. Discovering him. Seeing him. Spending time with him. Being part of the family. Letting him love us. He's given us the most incredible gift in the world. And it's him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you didn't just leave us to, to get on with things. That you gave us a new life. You didn't leave us in the mess we were before we found you. Lacking purpose. Lacking meaningfulness. But you came to live in us so that our wants, our desire would be for you. And you called us into your family. And you called us in and you called us royalty. Kings, princes, princesses. You called us to be a royal priesthood. And you called us from that place that as we hallow you, as we raise you up, as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King of the universe, that the world will see that you are truly the only thing, the only person, the only God who gives meaning to their lives. And God, most of all, we thank you that you gave us the most precious gift, which is yourself. Relationship with yourself. Access to yourself. The ability to know you to the, abili the ability to be loved by you, the ability to spend time with you, the ability to hear your heart, to hear your voice. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the greatest gift imaginable. Amen.